0: The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. All right, if you want to go ahead and take your Bibles and open with me the book of Mark, we'll be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We're going to be picking up at the remainder of our context from last week when we're talking from verses 21 and 22. So Mark, chapter 1. 21 and 22 is kind of where we left off and also where we're picking up. Now we're gotten down to the section, and I'll pop up here on the screen, of speaking about his command, his authority, his power that is that Jesus possessed. And really, this context in my mind goes from verse 21 through 34. I think you can divide it out a little bit differently. The first part of that context is what we talked about last week, and that is his authority, particularly concerning the words that he spoke. Jesus had a twofold authority that he was able to express and at least Mark chooses to express in that way. And that first part of the context mentions the words that he spoke. The second part of the context, which picks up here in verse 23, at least in my mind, doesn't concern his words as much as it concerns his works. Another way of stating that the idea of works is also you could speak of it as far as his miracles. Also, it's referred to in Scripture as his signs, his wonders, his mighty deeds. And you look at 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 12 and get three of those uh, titles given along. You can look throughout the gospel accounts and see different expressions of that. You can see that John uh, the baptizer, um, I'm sorry, um, John the apostle in his gospel account, uh, when you get down toward the latter to end of John chapter 20, You find out that actually the signs, that's the wonders, the miracles, the mighty deeds that Jesus did, had a particular purpose, and that main purpose was just forefront of everything, and that is to prove that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, is what John tells us in his gospel account. Now, Mark doesn't veer from that whatsoever. Uh, Mark does tend, in his account, to lean, like John does, over toward the side of his works. Although other gospel accounts speak quite a bit of his word, Mark is more focused on his works, and so it's kind of what I would call a service gospel because it speaks of the service that he did, whether it's standing up teaching, using those words, or healing and other things that he would do. Casting out devils will be the first section of this that we look on to tonight. Now, as I always say, it's good to see some of the parallel passages here. In this case, what we're going to be discovering in verses 23 through 28, and that is the casting out of a demon, a devil, in that place. Um, It can also be found over in Luke's account, Luke chapter 4, verses 33 to 37. Uh, Now, we're not going to go to that particular context tonight, really, for time's sake, because Luke doesn't give hardly any Variation. We may mention a thing or two, but there's very little variation in those two accounts, Mark's and Luke's account. So there's very little to be added to that discussion. We'll mention a few things, but nothing major in that. So we just kind of pick up really exactly where we left off on last week. Uh, Keeping in mind that Jesus has moved into the the place of Capernaum. uh, That ultimately would probably be named or uh, considered to be his hometown. At this point of course he was born in Bethlehem eventually grew up in Nazareth after a short stop over in Egypt but now he's moved in and around Capernaum and that seems to be kind of a home base now he's not going to stay there we showed a few maps a few weeks ago about all the work he would do that go around and around basically uh, that of Galilee and other areas in that but that seems to be kind of a home base it's kind of a place where he comes back where he spends the majority of his time and it's one of the places where he kind of begins His earthly ministry. So in verse 21, I've got the whole thing on the screen here. We won't discuss it all. But verse 21, remember it says, And they, that is Jesus and his disciples, went into Capernaum and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught as one that had authority and not as one of the scribes. And that's really where we spent all of our time last week, maybe even a little bit the week before, in discussing how different his teaching was from what the scribes or what any of those others would do in that day. And it mainly came down to the stated fact here in Mark's account, and that is that he taught as one that did have authority. And of course, his authority came from his father God. Obviously, that's who he would quote, that's who he would reference, that's who he would lift up in all of his teaching. But also, it came from within himself, being that he was what I call God in a body, the son of God. There are times, particularly recorded in the Sermon on the Mount, there are several instances that you can discover where he spoke, and he said, You have heard it hath been said of old, but I say unto thee. And he had that authority to do with that the scribes did not have. Of course, they could quote the written word of God, but they did not have the authority to come up with anything necessarily on their own. And so that's kind of the key contrast there that he was different in his teaching. It was distinctive. His doctrine, his teaching was very distinctive. So that moves us into, right in behind that, him continuing to prove his authority, really shifting from words into works. We'll read now verse 23 and following. It says this, And there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee. I know who thou art the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him, I'm in verse 26, he cried with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, insomuch as they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? And with what, here's your key word, with what authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits and they do obey and immediately his fame was spread abroad throughout all the region and round about galilee now we'll notice a few things in this mainly we'll try to hit some of the highlights and that is that when mark teaches right here when he speaks when he talks about him being in the synagogue that's where we have to have that connection made that nothing has changed Now, this is just a theory of mine, that's all it is, so don't quote me from your notes in that. But it seems that this man has been in the synagogue. Remember the context of that synagogue reading, and it goes back to some of the other accounts in more detail in that that Jesus came into the synagogue. It was tradition in those synagogues that oftentimes men would get up, they would read from the law, they would read from the prophets, what have you, and then after doing so, they would allow others, teachers, rabbis, if you will, which Jesus fulfilled both of those, they would allow them then to stand up and basically Comment. They could read Scripture, they could comment on it, they could kind of share that, they could help one another out, basically speaking. And Jesus has kind of taken his turn. That's what happened in the preceding two verses to this. And so most likely this man had already been in the synagogue, had already been present, had already witnessed the teaching, heard the words of what Jesus spoke, but it seems apparent to me at least that he had not yet had this outburst. What takes place in verse 23, 24, and 25, the outburst where he begins to cry out, he hadn't had that yet. So to some extent, this man was under the the control, obviously, of this unclean spirit, this demon, if you want to call it that. But at the same time, it wasn't kind of 100% consistent, full-time control. He obviously had had some period, I don't know how long that lasted, where he was uh, taking a break from that, if you will, or given a break from that because he had made it into the synagogue. If he had been known to have already had that unclean spirit, or if that unclean spirit had come out at any point prior to this, he would not have been allowed in that synagogue. So as he is found there in the synagogue, apparently he is able to be there. He's able to whatever point you would call it, worship there. He's able to participate. He's able to be a, a, I guess you would call a member of that synagogue, which is nothing more than saying that assembly. And so when this man has this outburst, when this demon, when this unclean spirit burst out of him, I would say it probably took all of them back for a moment. And the way in which they dealt with unclean spirits, demonic possession, whatever you would call that, uh, in that day would have been very severe typically as far as his witnesses. But Jesus is here and he's present with him. And so what this demon possessed him to say, and that's the first beginning of this, verse 23 to reread it. And it says, when he was in the synagogue, the man of the Holy Spirit cried out, saying, Let us alone, what have we to do with thee? Now, this is where some of the other translations that come out. I think it's the New King James, I believe. I may be wrong. That could be the ESV. I have to back up. But they actually expand that point, I think, very clearly to ask the question, what business do we have with you? Meaning, what what do we really have? If I'm on the demonic, the unclean spirit side, and obviously the back opposite is the holy God himself, God in the body, the son of God standing here, what fellowship, you might call it that, what business do we have together? Now, there's a practical application of that. It's obvious. What business do we have hanging out with an unclean spirit? And what business do we have assuming that if we're in sin or participating in sin, that we have any reason or business fellowship alongside of God? Honestly, we don't. We shouldn't. But this unclean spirit is overtaking this man. So we ask that question, what have we to do with thee? And then where it comes in here, and we're going to mention this for the majority of the rest of the time, really, after we scan across, uh, scan across, not scam, uh, scan across some other things. um, When he says here, what business would have? He says, "Art thou come to destroy us?" Now, what ultimately would Jesus do every time he encountered, according to what we have revealed? Now, we don't have every account clearly revealed, but what would he do with these spirits? He He cast them out. He didn't leave them, that we know about at least. Of course, if he did, it was his choice. But he didn't leave them remaining there. He didn't leave them to effectually try to damage or to damn his teaching or to go up against his teaching. He would take opportunity whenever he had it, according to the record at least, to cast them out. And so their first question for him is, what are you going to do with us? Are you intending, are you here only to destroy us? And look at the next phrase. Then they say to him, I know who thou art, the Holy One of God. Did the demons, does it seem apparent that the demons had some knowledge of who he was? You can just nod like this. Absolutely. They had a great knowledge at this point. We don't know exactly how all that was revealed, but they had some apparent knowledge of who he was. If you look back into other, other parallel passages, other things that is happening here, you can go back, I've got some references scratched in here. Genesis chapter 32, 29, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 13. There was oftentimes, under the old law at least, you find instances at least, where to state a person's name or to state a person's position was to, in a sense, mentally, emotionally, to defeat them. Think about the time when Jacob was wrestling with the angel. You go back to that exchange, I think that is the, the uh, connection there in thirty-two twenty-nine and, and the context around that. The angel in turn asks as well as Jacob in turns, asks one another back and forth, who are you? Tell us who you are. Tell us who is causing this battle to be ensued. And the point there being that if I can find or state who you are, then I begin to get that upper hand. So they make a statement here. Thou art the Holy One of God. And then they adjure him. They say this. Keep up the reading there. There art the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. Hold thy peace and come out of him. Again, Jesus did not want them to be there in the same same, uh, body. They did not want this man to be dwelling in that place. They did not want these two entities that is a holy man trying to be a holy man of God and the devil to be against each other he said come out of him and then there's the reaction verse 27 we're moving quickly through it verse 27 picking that or 26 we read to it and when the unclean spirit had torn him he cried with a loud voice and he came out of him And they were all amazed. Now, we looked about, well, last week, I guess it was, if you back up into verse 22, it said, concerning his teaching, it says, they were all astonished. When we're talking about the word astonished back over across the page, for me it is, I don't know how your Bible lays out, mine's right there. We talk about the word astonished right there. The meaning behind that word was basically that they were all struck. It's kind of the idea that they were frozen in their tracks. They had never, according to what we find out here, they had never heard teaching like this. They had never seen such authority. They had never seen such power to be placed within a man. As a matter of fact, if you look at the word authority there in that same context, verse 22, it says, For they were astonished at his doctrine, for he that is Jesus taught is one who had authority. We mentioned what that word was, that Greek word, exthusia. Meaning out of him or out of his character was power. That's what Jesus was. That's not what he had. That's what he was because he was God. And they were amazed at that. Now across the page here, the word amazed, verse 27. The Greek word in this term carries a similar idea but adds to it a level of the fact that they were terrified by this. You've got a... Unclean spirit, demon possession, if you want to call it that. They see Jesus and they see him calling upon them to get out of this man, cried out against him. They've already identified him. And when they had saw that, they were terrified by that. Why would a demon be afraid of God? Just guess. Because, well, like like they accused him, he could destroy them they had no, well, they had nothing in him, for one. They had no power over Jesus. And in Jesus casting them out, and what he eventually do in all these cases, they had really not only nothing in him, they had nothing that they could do for themselves. They were completely under his authority. If You look back and look at what what is said here, and I'm looking more directly at the text because we passed over it pretty quickly. But um, uh, he says, um, backing up to verse 23, 3 or 24 uh, saying thing let us alone what have what's the next word we to do with thee jesus of nazareth for thou come to destroy us i know who thou art thou art the holy one of god now i've circled the word we i think i did at least there are a couple of different ideas one idea is one that obviously could be true and that is the demon is speaking on behalf of himself the demon the evil spirit in this case and the man which he's possessed It's a possibility. Other possibilities would be more along the lines of he's speaking like ultimately Jesus would cast out a demon or a series of demons who called themselves according to what they named themselves. They said we are legion. What does that mean? There were many demons possessing some people. Some people had more than one, had multiples. Legions could have indicated more than hundreds or something like that. But it seems even more likely, and I, this is the case I take. You can take it or leave it. I think the first is less likely, the second's a little bit more. But I think the most likely idea could be that they're saying, what power, you know, what should we have to do with thee? Meaning, I'm going to speak on behalf of all demons. What is it that you're doing here? Have you come to destroy us? Ultimately, you could say, have you come to destroy us all? Are you going to completely overthrow us? And what authority we supposedly have gained in this world? Let us alone. What have we to do with thee? For thou art Jesus of Nazareth, or thou art come to destroy us. I know who they are. the Holy One of God. Now, one thing that stood out in this, they're more toward the latter, and I'm trying to cover this so we can get to the latter part of this. But when it says they were all amazed, in so much as they questioned among themselves, saying, what thing is this? What new doctrine is is this. Did Jesus teach? Yes. He did. Yes. If you reference back the preceding context. He spoke with his mouth. But by him standing against this evil spirit. Whatever it was. This unclean spirit. That within itself was a part of his teaching. That was a part of his doctrine. And that was a doctrine that proved his authority. If you want to call it that. As a matter of fact, what the verse says, over them. For what authority commandeth us to even obey, uh, for even the unclean spirits to obey him? Chronologically, and there, there's some argument back and forth. Now, you know, when you look in uh, John's accounts, of course, John has a different purpose in mind from what Mark does as well as Matthew. We looked at that uh, two or three months ago. But if you look at the, at the account of the Gospel of John, it mentions his first recorded miracle as being what? Changing of water into wine. But it says something specifically, and I'll admit I'm, I'm probably just ignorant, but this occurred to me today when I was trying to put these things in order and trying to figure out when these miracles may have taken place. Specifically, what John says, this is the beginning of miracles which occurred in what? Cana of Galilee. So see, it doesn't imply, John is not necessarily implying that this is, and I've always thought this and taught this, for a matter of fact, that that, that what John records in John chapter 2 is his first miracle period, nothing else to be said about it. He actually didn't say that. He says the first miracle that took place in Cana of Galilee, it is the first recorded miracle in the way that John chooses by inspiration to lay these things out, the order in which he applies to that. But as far as Mark's record, this is his first miracle listed. And this particular miracle right here, the casting out of this unclean spirit, had such an impact that it was a new, quote, doctrine. It was a new teaching that he was bringing. And that is teaching of what again? His authority over even the unclean spirits. I don't know how long the demon possession had been going on. I know that it was obviously a part of the New Testament narrative. It's a part of the life of Christ. He encountered that continuously throughout his earthly ministry and such. I don't know how long it had gone on prior to that uh, and such. But it seems evident that Jesus comes in to prove the point that he could even overcome that. Maybe they would have thought that is the worst case scenario that someone would be possessed by an unclean spirit. The worst case scenario that they would have to deal with, Jesus came to show his power over that. Now, we'll move on and skip over quite a bit of stuff from that. But look at what he did. When you think about this divide, and I've got the two things here on the screen divided up. We'll go back between the two. There was either on the one hand a group of people, individuals, whatever you want to call that, persons, that oftentimes received Jesus, that's the reception. Meaning when they heard Jesus teach, when they saw Jesus perform these miracles, signs, wonders, mighty deeds, they took on that and they said, okay, I have to admit, Jesus is the Son of God as he claimed to be. I accept him as that and I accept him at his word. On the other hand, there was oftentimes, particularly throughout the gospel accounts, Mark is very... Uh, strict in making this a point that there was a whole nother group, a less likely group, as a matter of fact, who when they heard the same words, when they saw the same works and wonders and mighty deeds, they immediately rejected Jesus. They threw him off. Now the interesting divide of this, and I've got several references we'll go through really quickly on the screen as we are about out of time already, but the real divide of this is the ones that received him more times than not, well, the less obvious ones, it was those like the unclean spirits. The first reference here on the screen, Mark chapter 1, verse 24 is where we are. They said, let us along, for what have we to do with thee, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God? Art thou come to destroy us? I know who thou art, the Holy One of God. Now, I give a lot of credit, and I don't think it was wrong to do so, but I've given a lot of credit to the apostles and or disciples that are recorded throughout Scripture, whether it be Nathaniel and what he did, whether it be John the baptizer and what he did, whether it be Peter and what he did, who would stand up and say things like, as John did, John 1 verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. That's good, John. You got that right. Whether it be like Peter, as he was there with the 11 when Jesus is recorded in John chapter 6, the multitudes were there in and around with Jesus. They had been there and witnessed the feeding of that 5,000 uh, men alone and such. And after that, he started into his really doctrinal teaching, they started to go away. John 6, 68 and following. And Jesus asked his disciples, will you also go away? Was Peter's answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Good job, Peter. It would be Peter that when Jesus asked questions, Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 16, and asked, you know, who do men say that I am? They would give answers to all the disciples they would throw in. Peter would be the one to stand out of the group and say, hold up, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. I give all those guys credit. But in more cases than are listed among those are the cases where, like this one, where the demons initially and more, more quickly knew who he was. They made that statement, or this one made that statement at least. Thou art the Holy One of God. Matter of fact, they called him Jesus of Nazareth in the context too, but that wasn't a reference to his deity. It's a reference to his humanity. And the next one here, Mark chapter 3 and verse 11. Same, uh, same book, as a matter of fact, in term, for me, you can turn one page and get to it. But we have another account where he's encountering unclean spirits. It says, And when they saw him, they fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. They were willing to admit who he was. They were willing to accept that. Forward a little bit farther in the same book. Mark chapter 5, verse 1 and following. Let's see if we can skim through that real quickly. I'll have to look at it here for ease of read at least. And they came over on the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Who had him, in verse 3, had his dwelling among the tombs and no man could bind him. No, not with chains, because he had been often bound in feathers and, chains, and, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him. And the fetters had been broken into pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, so this man's in bad shape. He was in the mountains and in tombs and crying and cutting himself with stones. But when, G- when he saw Jesus afar off, watch what he did. Say that in verse 6. When he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and... What's that next word? You can cheat or you can look down. Worshiped him. He gave honor, he gave homage to Jesus. And he's what? This is the demon. The man possessed the demon. And he cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee? Very similar to our account, different account. What what have I to do with thee? Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. So they knew. The demons understood that. Luke's account has another one of these. Luke chapter 4, verses 40 and 41. And now when the sun was setting... They that were sick and divers diseases brought them unto him and laid, him, <laughs> laid hands upon him and on them that healed them. And the devils came out of many crying, saying, Thou art the... This sounds just like Peter, right? Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. And were them. They suffered not to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. See, again, they're doing something. This, these demons, the unclean spirits... They're making a, a connection here very quickly that others would not. And then, of course, we've got this one culminating in the record from James chapter 2 and verse 19. It's kind of a go-to uh, text that, that all of us might use. Thou believest there is one God, thou believest well. The devils believe and tremble. So the devils had a level of faith, at least, a point or a level to their faith. In most cases, they came out. Now, whether or not this would change anything about them obviously would not But their statements were often bold as to who he was. So that's those who received him. And again, they may have very well and could have because there were resurrections in the Old Testament. They could obviously or could possibly give someone more credit as far as their ability to raise the dead in some cases than to cast out these demons. Jesus is here and able to do that. Now, as far as those that rejected him, and this is the main groups, and I say groups because when you see the term Pharisees sometimes, Pharisees were subdivided into a lot of different sects, a lot of different groups. I won't, we don't have time to go into that. But this is one of those examples, Mark chapter 3 and verse 6. And the Pharisees went forth straightway and took counsel with the Herodians against him that they might destroy him. So he, he performs miracles, he speaks, he teaches, he does all that he does with everybody else and the reaction to that is that of rejection. Chapter 3 and verse 22 which is right down the page from that and when the scribes, another group that hung with them, there have already been two mentions by the way, the Pharisees, the Rhodians, and the scribes were three of his uh, probably worst enemies in most cases and the scribes which came down to Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, that is to say basically a devil, and by the prince of devils, he cast out devils. So even when they see him doing something that according to Mark's account, caused them to all to be amazed, they turn and look at it and say, well, uh, yeah, he did it. But uh, if you think about how he did it, he probably used the devil to cast out a devil. And of course, the discussion later than this is Jesus saying, you know, can a house divided against itself stand? And, and they, they certainly were ne- not in record, at least, Many of them were ever willing to give Jesus any of the credit that he deserved. You move on into chapter 6 of Mark's account. Uh, Mark chapter 6 verses 2, 3, and 6. Here's what it says. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogues. And many were hearing and were, there's our word again, astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? So where did he get this power? And what wisdom is this that is given unto him? and that even such mighty works are wrought in his hands. Is it not that this is the carpenter's son, the carpenter, the son of Mary, and also the brother of James and Joseph and Judea and Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were all offended at him. So they were willing to, obviously, as the text states, they identified him specifically by his lineage, by his heritage, by his people's, but they were not willing to identify him with his father in that. And then verse 6 just kind of picks up some of the same, just to skip down a little bit, and they marvel because of their unbelief. They were not willing to believe. And then Mark chapter 8, all of these I chose to pull from Mark, verses 14 to 21 is a lengthy text, but just to emphasize for time, you get down here, we got the Pharisees in verse 15 being listed. And he says, They reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. And when Jesus knew it, he saith to them, Why reason ye because you have no bread? Perceive ye not, neither do you understand. Now, this is not an attack on the Pharisees itself. This is Jesus speaking of whom? His own disciples. Jesus basically, in this context, relays some of the most recent miraculous acts that they've been a part of. Feeding of the, in this case, it's not the 5,000, it's a different context. But he relays some of the most recent miracle, miraculous acts they have witnessed. And he says, why are you not believing me yet? Why is it, last phrase here, how is it that you do not understand? Well, we know how they didn't understand because, at least I do, because sometimes I and you as well are guilty of the same. And so what do we have here? We have the the point, and this is my only point out of the context here, other than the fact that this is the authority of Jesus being expressed by his works. Knowledge, or the knowledge that they had of Jesus is what really made the difference. Go to this reference I have down here. If you can't see this, it's it's John chapter 8. Go to John chapter 8. Look with me, beginning in verse 39. John chapter 8. Beginning in verse 39, now Jesus is having a conversation back and forth with some of those that claimed that they could point to Abraham as their father and that they somehow could boast about that point. We're picking up in the middle of that, mind you. We're jumping in where we probably shouldn't. Verse 39, and they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, if, if ye were Abraham's children, then ye would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that had told you the truth, which I have heard of God, and this did not Abraham. For ye, verse 41, do the deeds of your father. And said they to him, We be not born of fornication, for we have but one father, even God. Verse 42, And Jesus said to them, If, the father were God, if, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came forth from God, neither have I myself, but hath sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in truth, because there was no truth in him. And when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he is a liar and the father of it. And because, verse 45, I tell you the truth, you believe me not, which you are convinced me in sin, and I say that the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words, and therefore hear them not, because they are not of God. But in the contrast here, what happened? Even the devils believed and trembled. So the knowledge that they were able to possess or accept, I think is probably a better way, oftentimes made the difference. Now, we don't have time to go to any of these. You can jot those down. The, the principal fact is here, because Jesus could do something as big as, I don't know if that's the way to put that, but as big as cast out demons, we also have hope. Because demons uh, ultimately represent that which is a lie, that which is not of the truth, and ultimately could represent that which is sins. Anything else? I'm just blown away that we got through that many verses in one time. Thank you for your attention.